Romans chapter 2, we are getting back into our, our text this morning as we are preaching through the book of Romans. And I've had several people ask me, Brother Greg, how long do you think it's going to take to go through the book of Romans? I don't have any idea. I originally planned for eight to nine months, but I guarantee you it's going to be longer than a year. But uh, that's okay because I think there is so much to work through as we go through these passages. In fact, we could spend a year in the first chapter if we really wanted to. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he uh, preached a series, uh, he preached through the book of Romans and it took him 14 years. He took his church through a 14-year study through the book of Romans. And, um, and, and that, I think, just shows you the level of depth that you can go to in this book. Because this book really is a book about humanity and our sin. And it's about grace. It's about salvation. It's about God's work in the life of humanity. It's very relatable. It's very applicable. And, um, and, and it's very confronting. And so Paul is writing to a group of believers in Rome. And obviously he's writing to many who believe that they are believers. They are religious. They have uh, religious um, manifestations. They look religious. They look Christian. But he's confronting them and he's confronting Christians too with a word about judgment. And as I mentioned last Sunday, we talked about the religious hypocrisy in the lives of many people who believe that they are entitled to the grace of God because they are good people. They are good in doing religious things. They try to be the best religious person they can be. And they even do many good things from their religion and they feel a sense of entitlement. They feel they feel superior to others who are not as good as them. So Paul is addressing these, these really two categories of people. The non-religious and the religious. The non-religious and the religious. And in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul is talking about the non-religious, unbelieving Gentile society. The Roman society. The in every other society by extension. And he tells them, and he uses the, the plural pronoun in the third person, the word they. They. And he says this, writing to believers and to many religious people who would have heard that letter read for the first time. They are without excuse. They are without excuse. God has revealed himself to all of creation through creation itself and through the conscience. Every single individual in the world has a sense of right and wrong. They do. 
Even non-religious people lock their doors at night. They know the difference between right and wrong. And so he's telling them they are with, he's telling, telling the church, they are without excuse. They have no excuse because God has made himself abundantly clear to them through creation and through the conscience. And here's the point. One day they will stand before God in judgment and they will have no excuse. That's what he's saying. They will not be able to argue their defense and say, God, you did not prove yourself to me. You didn't show yourself to me. No, what God says about them is that they have enough proof, they just suppress the truth and they suppress it in unrighteousness. All right, so you can almost see the religious people going, yeah, they're going to get what they deserve. And then Paul says something to the religious folk in chapter two, verses one through five, both the Jews and the Gentiles, both who have come to know some truth about God through his word, they are religious. He comes to them now and he moves from the pronoun they to you. And he says, you also are without excuse. Verse one, you have no excuse. And he's pointing out something to both the non-religious and the religious. Both are unbelieving. Both are unbelieving. And so judgment's going to come in the same way to a non-religious or to a religious person as it is to a non-religious person. Paul is showing us that both religious people and non-religious people are in the same boat of judgment. We see that in verses 6 through 10. And now Paul is describing the type of judgment that both religious and non-religious people are going to face. Now here's what Paul wants us to know. He wants us to know that there are no special categories for people who are saved. There's no special category for any certain type of person to be saved. And the point that we see over and over, especially as Paul's writing to both Jews and non-Jews, Paul makes it abundantly clear there's going to be Jews in hell and there's going to be Gentiles in hell. But when we extend out that teaching, we see something even further. There's going to be Baptists in hell. There's going to be Catholics in hell. There's going to be white people in hell and there's going to be black people in hell. There's going to be men in hell and there's going to be women in hell. Paul's making it abundantly clear. God shows no partiality. When it comes to the eternal soul and judgment, there is no partiality with God. In fact, verse 11 can't state it any more clear. For God shows no partiality. There's going to be rich people in hell and there's going to be poor people in hell. The judgment of God will come on every type of individual. This means that the whole world is without excuse before God. And the reason is because the truth of God is available. The reality of God being the creator of all things is available for all people to see. It's known in the hearts of all people. But that truth is being suppressed. Whether religious or non-religious, it is being suppressed. It is being disobeyed. It is being rebelled against by both categories, whether you're a religious person or a non-religious person. The religious hypocrites that we talked about in 
verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2 are those who, again, they have the revealed truth about God. They know the truth about God, and so they see themselves as being entitled, and they're doing good things, so they're not bad like the other people. They don't deserve hell like all those other people out there. I deserve heaven. They deserve hell. I'm not bad like them. And so Paul reveals his future judgment. So look here again in our text. It says, he will render, think about that context in mind. As Paul says this, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Notice in that passage, there are some who receive eternal life and there are some who receive eternal damnation. That's the judgment. That's what we see. We see these two things that take place in this judgment. And what is Hebrews 9, 27? You all know this verse. It is appointed unto man once to die. And then what? In the judgment. There is a judgment. But again, the point, and, and I want you to, I really want us to get this this morning. A person is not chosen for life or death on the basis of their Jewishness or any inherited distinctiveness. It doesn't matter if you were born in Bethlehem or if you were born in Jerusalem or if you were born in Mississippi. Nothing matters. There's no inherited distinctiveness. There's no opportunity that you had that's going to make you more likely to be saved. We got to get this. We are not saved on the basis of opportunity. We are not saved on the basis of some inherited distinctiveness. It doesn't matter if your daddy's a Baptist preacher. That doesn't qualify you for heaven. It doesn't matter if your mother sang in the choir. That does not qualify you for heaven. It doesn't matter if you were baptized by the Pope himself. That does not qualify you for heaven. It doesn't matter if you're the Pope. That doesn't qualify you for heaven. There is no spiritual quality. No religious quality, no inherited quality that qualifies anybody for heaven. There's not a single religious status that gives you any merit with God. So notice what he says. He will render to each one according to his works. Now this raises a really big concern for those of us who understand the biblical doctrine of salvation. How does, and here's the question, how does receiving eternal life or eternal damnation according to one's works fit with the teaching of that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, and Jesus Christ alone? Now that's a dilemma for us as we look at this at its, at its face value on the surface but first, let me say this, and let me, let me just get this out of the way. Paul is not saying that a person is saved by their works. He doesn't say that a person receives eternal life or eternal damnation on the basis of good works, but according to. So it's something that's in accord with good works. 
So it's not on the basis of it. So Paul's not saying that. And Paul makes this abundantly clear. And I felt like it was necessary for us this morning to to kind of dive a little bit, to digress a little bit into the clear teachings of Scripture about salvation by faith alone. Uh, One of the principles in biblical interpretation is called the analogy of faith. That means we interpret Scripture with Scripture. When the Scripture seems to be unclear in one area, we go to the places where it is very clear. Right? And so let's look at some of the teachings of Paul. We're going to look to see Romans 3, Romans 4, and Romans 5. We could keep going, but just for the sake of time, Romans 3.28 says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So what's Paul saying? Well, faith apart from works is what reconciles a person to God through Jesus Christ. Then let's also consider Romans chapter 4, where it says in verse 5, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now this verse actually made me think of the thief on the cross. You know, the thief on the cross never stepped foot one day in a church. He never sang one worship song, never prayed to Jesus or in Jesus' name, was never baptized. And never did any good thing for Jesus. The only thing he did was on that cross in his dying breath, he believed on Jesus Christ. And today, according to scripture, he is in heaven with the Lord himself. By faith alone. Through grace alone. We see this theme continue. Romans chapter 3, Romans 4, Romans 5. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How is a person justified, church? By faith. By faith. The clear teachings of Scripture is that by faith a person is justified. By faith a person can have peace with God. It is by faith. That's a gift from God. Therefore, faith cannot be considered a work. It is a gift. So let's return to our question, right? Why is Paul saying that God will render to each one according to His work, because if a person does have true faith, here's the kicker. If a person does have true faith, then there will be works in accord with their faith. There will be works connected with their faith if they have long enough to live. A person can die on their deathbed without any good work, but faith alone and be saved. But if you have faith and God gives you many years to live, your life will be marked with some fruit, with some works that manifest that you have faith. They they are a testimony of your faith in Jesus Christ. And so this is what we see Paul is talking about. They will... Be patient in their Christian walk. They will, in other words, keep believing in Jesus Christ no matter what they go through in life, no matter how difficult life gets, no matter how tough things become in their life, no matter how unfair life is and how much evil or oppression they go through, they will keep on believing. They will persevere in the faith toward Jesus Christ. That is what we see in Scripture. In fact, let's look at another verse in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It says, for by grace, you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is what? Not your own doing. Even faith itself. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Your salvation isn't a result of something you did. 
Uh, belonging to a church, going to church, tithing, praying, being baptized, being nice. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that what? You can't boast. You can't brag. There's no congratulations to you. Right? For we are His workmanship. In other words, He's done something in us. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, brothers and sisters, eternal life is based on one's faith in Jesus Christ and His grace that He freely offers. But when one does put their faith in Jesus Christ, their life will operate in accordance with that faith. This means then that a person who says they believe in Jesus, but they have no qualifying marks that connect them to Jesus, their faith is fraudulent. They are counterfeit. They are fake. They are phony. Not real. Consider what James, the half-brother of Jesus, said in James 2, verse 14 and verse 26. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? He goes on to say in the latter part of that chapter, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. What kind of faith is it that doesn't produce works? That's the point. So the scripture that James says makes two things abundantly clear. Faith apart from doing good things is useless. What good is that? But faith that does not produce, or, uh, but faith that does produce good works is the faith that saves you. And so those two things are abundantly clear. Now, look back in verse five of our text. The judgment of God is a righteous judgment. We see that back in verse five. And you step back a little bit. He says, this is the righteous judgment of God. And it's not just righteous in the eyes of God. It's going to be righteous in the eyes of everybody else. And this is why works are important because these works are going to be manifested on the day of judgment so that everybody can see God is fair. So that everybody can see that God's righteous is judgment. Not that he has to prove anything, but he's making a declaration that he's going to support and you are going to be the deciding, your testimony is going to be what reveals that. Okay? And so this is the thing that we see. His righteousness, his judgment is righteous. Every single work will be presented to those whose works are desiring to honor God, that they, are, they have a motive. So God's not just judging the work, He's also judging the heart, what's behind the work. And so we see for those who are giving honor to God through their work, they, they want to please God, they want to honor God, those works will manifest that this person had true, genuine faith. Because here's the reality. There's going to be many people, religious people, who will stand before God in the day of judgment. That day's coming. There will be many people who will stand before God, and what we see according to Matthew 7, 22, they will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? 
Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? In other words, what the religious folks are going to do on the day of judgment, those who are just religious, they're not saved by God's grace, they're just religious empty vessels. They're going to plead their case and they're going to say, wait a minute, look at my works. Look at the good... I preached every single Sunday in the name of Jesus. I went on crusades. I went on mission trips and we saw many great things happen for the Lord Jesus. Many missionaries. I, we, I did many wonderful... I cast out demons in your name. I did so many good things for you. You know what Jesus says later in that verse? He says, I will look at them and I will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You workers of lawlessness. Your work wasn't for me. Your work was for you. It was for you. Yeah, you used my name. You used the Christian fish symbol. You identified yourself nominally to me, but never your heart, never your life. You see, Paul is talking to those who are religious there. And, and, and in Paul, when you, when you look back at, in our text at what he says, he says, they are self-seeking and they do not obey the truth. They were not following God. They were following their own appetites. They were not living a life of obedience to the things of God, but were instead using the things of God as a means of selfish ambition. It's a means to make themselves feel superior to others or to feel good about themselves. You know, a lot of people use church as a means to feel good about themselves. It just makes them feel good to go to church. Do you know coming to church isn't about you? Me preaching isn't about me. Us studying scripture isn't about us. Who's it about? It's about Jesus. It's about God. It's about knowing Him. Anything else is just a religion. Anything else void of God is just a religion. Empty vessels feeling good while on their way going to hell. Notice in the text, it makes it very clear. Many people who are religious will say they've done all these great things. And if, if you're getting a check in your soul... That's a good thing. The Bible even tells us, examine yourself to find out if you're in the faith. Nothing wrong with that. Examine yourself to find out if you are in the faith. Because you see, here's what God going to do. God is not going to just reveal the works and he's not putting your works in a, in a scale and seeing if your good works outweigh your bad works. No, there's something else that's going to be revealed that day. And you know what it is? It's going to be your heart. It's going to be your motive. It's going to be why you did what you did. And we're going to see many people, many popular preachers, many famous leaders who will be surprised to find out that they're going to hell because they did many wonderful things. It doesn't matter how famous of a preacher you are, how many humanitarian works you did, it doesn't matter if you had your own TV program or how big your church was. None of that matters. The heart will be revealed. And one thing that will be determined, one thing everybody will know, 
we will all be able to say he has done all things well. He is righteous. His judgment is righteous. So we see from this text that there are some implications. Why do we need to hear this today? That's a good question for us. Well, the first implication I believe is obvious. You and I need to take life and death very serious. We need to take life. You know, that's something that I just don't see people taking serious today. We just think of life and death so casually. In fact, here's what most people do with death. They just pretend it doesn't exist. We just are going to forget about it. Most people, here's why I love the opportunity to preach the gospel at a funeral. No other time is people thinking about life and death more than at a funeral. But once the funeral's done, we're getting back to life. Life's just going to go on. I've got many years left. I've got a long time. Let me just say something. It doesn't matter. You need to listen to this. If you're a kid, my prayer is that if our young people here today, or our young people here today live long lives, I want them to have lives that are full of years. But do you know kids die at the age of eight, the age of 16? There's no guarantee of a long life. And these kids need to take life and death serious. Parents, you need to take life and death serious when you're with your kids. When I was five years old, I remember feeling the burden of sin in my own life at the age of five. Now, I believe it was at the age of eight that I came to true faith in Jesus Christ. But I remember having convictions as early as five years old. And at the age of five, let me tell you something. I was laying in my grandparents' guest bedroom. It was around midnight. It was dark. It was black. And do you know all I could think about? God just put this, this burden of eternity and judgment on my life. And, and guess what became very serious to me? Life and death. Life and death needs to be taken serious. This is a serious matter. If you're a teenager... Those moments of fun that you live for, those moments of just self and selfishness and, and thinking that you've got the rest of your lives to live again. I pray that all of our teenagers live long lives, but you could die before 20. Before you ever reach your 20th birthday, you could die. You need to take life and death Serious. You married couples, you young families that are so busy with work and life and trying to please your spouse and raise your kids and you're so consumed with everything else, you need to take life and death very serious. And for you older people, the aged, our elderly, death is as close to you most likely than anybody else in this room. For some of you, we could be having your funeral by the end of this year. For some, it could be by the end of this month. We need to take life and death serious. This is a serious matter. And so there are implications to what Paul is saying. And the implications is that we take life serious. We take death serious. Now there's a second implication. And here's the second implication. We need to take the life and death of Jesus serious. You need to take life and death serious, but you need to take the life and death of Jesus very serious. And this is the good news. This is the good news of the message today. And here's the good news. God sent his son. Amen. 
He sent His Son to live the perfect life, the sinless life, the life that you could never live. To become the perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice that you could never provide. And in His life and in His death, we see the work of God. Jesus said on the cross, His work was finished. And then we see on the third day after His death, He rose from the dead. And here's the good news. The good news is that salvation is not provided in our work. It's provided through His work. It's through what He did because we could never do enough. It's through faith in that gospel, in that good news, in that truth of who Jesus Christ is and what He did. You see, that's the very nature of the cross shows us the need for faith. Let me read a passage, Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. It says, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. The word of what? The word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put ashamed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who does good works, Will be saved? No. He did the good work. Our salvation is within the confession and the faith that we have toward Jesus' work, that we're trusting in what He did and not our religious works, not our goodness, not our going to church, not our connections with church. None of those things. You see, believing in God means that you are trusting in Him. It means that you have a love for God that removes the fear and the stress and the worry of death. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, it should mean that you have a love for Him that is so overwhelming that you're not afraid to die. You're not afraid of living. You're not afraid of this life. That's what we find. We are justified by faith and we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. He gives us peace through this faith, through that love that we have for Him, that love that He has for us. You see, salvation, brothers and sisters, is more than just wanting to escape hell. Uh, you know, you've been part of services, I'm sure, where a preacher stood up and told all the kids, if you don't want to go to hell, raise your hand. Folks, let me tell you something. Not wanting to go to hell is not what will save you. Heaven is not fire, fire insurance. Loving Jesus, knowing Jesus, knowing what He did, and putting your faith in His work, in His completed work, and not your own. Because guess what? One of these days, all the secrets will be revealed. I don't know your heart. Only you know your heart. 
But just know this, God is good. God loves his people. And this is why he warns us. I want you to think of something this morning. The fact that God is warning you today with this passage is a testimony of his love for you. It's a testimony of his love for you that he's giving you a warning. The reason that the Bible has warnings is because he loves you. If God did not love you, he would not warn you. These passages, though they have this weight and this burden, this conviction that's connected with them, you don't need to see it separated from the love and grace of God that God gives us this so that we will examine our hearts. No matter what phase we're at in life, no matter what position we hold in church, even myself included, we are all called to look within. But more than that, we are called to look up. And we need to see the goodness of God and we need to see His grace that apart from Him, there is no way we can do any good thing. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. There is no good work. There is no ability for you to do any good thing apart from me. But for those of us who are trusting in Jesus today, you need to know that Jesus will enable you. He'll work through you. He'll work His peace in your life and He'll work his, your faith in your life. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. So here's the thing about doing good works. Doing good works is about leaning more and more on God and less on yourself. It's leaning more and more on God and less on your church. It's leaning more and more on God and less on your religion. Doing good works is about loving Jesus. And it's allowing Him to live His life in and through you. Father God, thank You for this day. And thank you for this word of warning and this word of comfort. Thank you for showing us that through the warning, your grace is amazing. That Lord, we wouldn't know how amazing grace is if we didn't know how bad we were in need of your grace. And so Lord, I pray that we would do two things from this passage today. We would take life and death serious. And that we would take the life and death of Jesus very serious. And we would recognize that apart from you, there is no hope. To see that Jesus is our God, our Creator, our Lover, our Savior. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see this today and to be mindful of it and to worship you through that truth. To give you glory for your goodness and your grace. Lord, help none of us here to glory in our goodness. Humble us this morning, Lord, if we think that we have done anything worthy of your love. Help us to know it's only what you have done, not what we have done. So God, strip us of our pride, strip us of our self-reliance, strip us of our religion. Lord, and give us Jesus. Help us to see you're great and good. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.